I'm Dustin Zahn, and this is Trainwrecks. Well, it's been about two weeks since the last episode. Um, I try to get it out weekly, and I'm sorry that I couldn't make that happen, but things have been a little busy on my end. Uh, went on a trip, and now I'm currently sick, and uh, things just haven't been working out so well. I also have to admit that uh, I actually recorded an episode with another guest I was really uh, excited about this one. It was a good episode, and unfortunately, the recording didn't turn out, so we lost it. Uh, that really sucks, but we're going to re-record soon, and I'm sure it'll be great. Then, I took off to the United States for a couple weeks to do some shows. In between the weekends, I was visiting some friends and family in Minneapolis. Uh, that's where I had a chance to interview this week's guest, Paul Birkin. Paul's a friend of mine that I met around 2002. You know, we used to hang out a bit and go snowboarding once in a while. Uh, we did a record together in 2004. To be honest, I do not remember the name of the record, but uh, just Google it. It's out there. Uh, the thing about Paul that I like in this industry, he's probably one of the nicest guys I've met. Um, I can't think of a single occasion where I've heard him, you know, talk shit about another producer or say anything negative. He's just always a genuinely positive dude who's got a nice quirky sense of humor. Um, yeah, I've got nothing but good things to say about him. Uh, he's kind of a Midwest rave hero who gained uh, early success on labels like Communicate, Don't, and his own label, Tone Wrecker. Uh, you know, since he started off in, I think, 96 or 97... He stayed productive every year with a variety of projects, but it's more just for fun rather than trying to push the profile. But uh, his recent stuff for Mord and Earwiggle really kind of caught the ear of a lot of the new techno generation. And now he's been traveling to Europe semi-regularly uh, semi in result. <laughs> Paul is also known as somewhat of a gear guru. Um He's always posting little videos of interesting things and sounds and stuff on Vine and Instagram and Facebook, all those social media channels. So if you're into gear, definitely check out what he's doing. And uh, so we're going to talk briefly about that. Also, uh, some small history lessons and what's making Paul click today. Also regarding the interview, the levels are a little off. Um as usual, but more importantly, I was doing this on a portable recorder, and it's been the first time that I've had to do that in about a year, so bear with me on that. Also, unless you've been in a coma for the past week, you have heard that Prince has died. Um, spending a lot of time in Minneapolis, you kind of get used to Prince being a big part of life there as far as the music scene goes. Um, I was never a huge fan of Prince, but I definitely liked uh, his music, although I haven't enjoyed anything from him in 25 years. I still respect kind of a lot of his views on uh, albums and the record labels and the streaming services. So I was going to kind of bring a lot of that into the light uh, in the intro here. And then I realized that after three or four more days of hearing all this Prince shit, I can't listen to another Prince song or tribute for, I don't know, at least five years. 
However, I do have a quick funny story semi-related to Prince that uh, I'll tell you about right now. It pertains to uh, techno and house legend uh, Moody Man. So years ago, this recording popped up online of Moody Man doing a DJ set in Chicago on Valentine's Day. I'm not exactly sure when it was. I want to say it was probably 2007, 8, something like that. Anyway, search for it online. It's really cool. Um, You know, it's just a lot of kind of like funk and soul, a little bit of disco, a couple house classics, standard Moody Man kind of DJ set. And uh, I was a big fan of it, as was another guy on my record label at the time. Uh, he used to release records as Decimal. Um, so we were we were totally into the set, listening to it a lot. And then uh, we went to the Detroit Music Festival. Uh, I don't remember what name it was going under that time. I think it was just Movement by that point. And uh, for those who have been to Detroit or those who haven't, to give you an idea, there's like this kind of center walkway that leads to all the stages. And there's these uh, merchandise booths that line the way with a bunch of shit from record labels that you can buy or sunglasses or whatever. And there's a booth there that uh, was ran by Kenny Dixon Jr., a.k.a. Moody Man. And uh, they were just selling stuff from his label and t-shirts and whatnot. So I want to say it was probably the last day of the festival. Uh, We were walking by the booth, and there was Kenny Dixon Jr. sitting there with two fly-ass girls on each side of him. One was kind of like running her fingers through his hair or something, and we're like... Hey man, I think that's Moody Man. And we're like, should we go talk to him? We're like, all right. Um, you know, and the thing is, I've, I've actually never, I don't get starstruck really, at least with musicians, uh, with comedians or something maybe. But I just wanted to meet the guy because he made such great music after all the years and basically just say hello. So we walk up to him and he's like, can I help you? And uh, we're like, uh, yeah, are you Kenny Dixon Jr.? He's like, no, who's that? And we knew who the guy was because if you see a picture of Kenny, he's like got the classic afro and the glasses. Like that's kind of his theme. So we're kind of like, what the fuck? And we're like, are you sure about that? He's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. And it was evident at that point where he's just kind of like, you know, fuck these white boys basically. So we're like, uh, okay, um, are you Moody Man? And he's like, yeah, sometimes it depends. Depends who you ask, what the situation is. We're like, all right, this dude's just kind of fucking with us, whatever. Um, so anyway, we're just kind of looking in the booth, seeing the T-shirts. And the T-shirts has a quote from one of his DJ sets that you know we were talking about from Chicago. And the shirt says... Hey, laptop DJs, your girlfriend likes 12 inches. And uh, so I go, oh, yeah, you know, by the way, the recording of that set from that quote, uh, I love that set. We've been playing it nonstop in the car and whatnot. And he goes, what are you talking about? I don't remember no set. And I'm like, well, you know, uh, you were sitting there playing like Michael Jackson and shit like that and having a couple drinks. He's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. 
playing Michael Jackson, have a couple of drinks, smoking down a little, looking at some titties. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like me. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool, you got it now. And he's like, so where are you from anyway? And I'm like, well, I'm from Minneapolis, the home of Prince. And he goes, goddamn motherfucking right, white boy, what's up? And then he gets out of his chair and gives me a high five. He starts talking about like how we need to hang out and he's going to come play for me and everything. And immediately after I dropped Prince's name, he was a fan. And, uh, you know, I saw him not too long ago in the airport lounge in Amsterdam and he remembered me still. So if you ever need a little bit of street cred with some artist from Detroit, just tell me you're a Prince fan. Anyway, I want to talk about one more thing before we get to the interview which I think I can do that to my show. Why not? Uh, But it's kind of a bummer, man. It's about death. And uh, with a couple of these more recent uh, celebrity deaths, uh, you know, we've been mourning over people that we had no uh, way of meeting in person ever in our lives. And uh, it's going to happen a lot more often. I kind of had this revelation last week that... uh, in our lifetimes, provided that we all live long and healthy lives, we're going to watch all of our favorite legends die. Uh, It's depressing, but it's a fact, and it's already happening at a quicker rate than we realize. Let's talk about music for a minute. Um, The biggest selling artists of all time in the industry, in order, are the Beatles, Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson... Madonna, Elton John, Led Zeppelin, and Pink Floyd. Um, You know, a handful of those have already passed away, and um, those who haven't are already quite old. So, uh, unfortunately, you know, in the next two decades, all of the biggest selling artists in the history of music uh, will have passed away. Next in line, uh, the only one that's come close to selling 200 million copies at number eight is Rihanna. And I'm sorry, but she's just not going to have as big of an effect as all the other people I just mentioned. Um, you know, other people that sold somewhere in between 100 to 150 million albums that uh, have become big stars in the last 15 years are uh, Taylor Swift, Kanye West, and Lady Gaga. Granted, Kanye has kind of changed hip-hop for a lot of the hip-hop fans, in their opinion. But, I mean, still, none of these guys are really going to have the legendary status that, uh, you know, the people I originally mentioned do. And furthermore, the other part of it is, is while it's still possible that an artist can come along and change music just as much as uh, those top-selling people, if not more, the likelihood is that it's not going to happen. And that's because record labels are drying up. I mean, what's the last time uh, there was a huge debut for a rock band, for example? I got to think long and hard, but probably the last band that had a massive album was, I don't know, was it Kings of Leon or something like that? Not even saying from a biased music perspective, but just on that level. So, yeah, I'm kind of looking at it in a negative light right now and I, I, I don't think that uh, the future is going to be good for this kind of thing that's all anyway enjoy the episode alright 
All right. Well, here we are, Paul. Thanks for coming on the show. Not a problem. And it's, it's cool uh, that you're back in town. So. Yeah. Um, I kind of rushed in to get like everything set up in the house here. We're in Paul's studio and uh, didn't really get a minute, but it's good to see you. It's been, I think... Uh, it's Berlin, uh, October, what, 2014 when I was over there? But did we hung out, was it two summers ago or was it last spring? I don't quite remember. I think it was probably almost two summers ago now, wasn't it? Probably. It's been a bit. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We've both been busy on whatever things we're up to, which we'll get into on the show here. But yeah, it's good to see you again. So, thank, and thanks for coming on. Um, I'm going to start off like I usually do, just go back a little bit on the history, fill people in and who you are, and uh, we'll go from there. Sounds good. Um, so, your first record, was it 96 that it came out, or was it earlier? I was on a compilation in 95 that Woody did um, called Musclebound, and it was a little seven-inch double pack that he did on one of his sub-labels yeah. under Communique, and uh, that one track was just a dat that he picked a track off of and put on the comp, and then the one that followed was the uh, Son of Gonzo, and that was right as 96 started. Was that Communique or still that on That one was on tape, That was, but that was okay. a 12-inch on tape. Okay. Um, and, I mean, I guess, what? how did you kind of get sucked into the whole world? Because you've always been a producer, not a DJ. Correct. Which is what a lot of people, I mean, around here people are aware of that, but like maybe for some of your newer audience, they're completely unaware. You've always been a live act. and I have no idea how to beat match. I have one turntable <laughs> sitting yep. over there to play records on. But you got a, you got more records than a lot of DJs these days, actually. <laughs> I love music. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I can tell just from all the jackets that it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of different things. It's not just like your records that didn't sell or something like that. <laughs> My stock. We, uh, there, a lot of us, we have the, you know, you go over and you're like, man, you got a lot of records. And then you realize it's a whole IKEA shelf. And it's like, oh, this is three releases that's waiting for the orders to come yeah, in. Yeah, it's it's going to sell someday. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, how how did you get you started or what? Did you end well, up at a party? Or? long, long ago was... Um, just the fascination with all the the sounds in the 80s that were coming out in the arcades and just the weird electronics and just caught my ear. And uh, I think I was about 13 and went to a roll-in convention that was in Minneapolis here and went through the whole demo. My dad took me over there and I got to listen to everything and um, was hooked. They were showing samplers and crazy stuff. Just my mind was spinning and that that was where the bug just set in. I had had some little, you know, the little Yamaha Porta Sound mm. keyboards and things and and whatnot, the preset stuff. But once I just saw those machines that you could change things in and kind of manipulate, I got the bug. And um, the funny part of that is my dad. It finished, and he could see how excited I was. And I said, "Can we get something? You know, can I get one of these machines?" Mm -hmm. Not really understanding how much they cost. And uh, he goes, "Yeah." Pick anything you want. And of course, I just started looking around and didn't hear kind of his follow-up of when you get a job. Yeah. <laughs> you <didn't have> <laughs> so so that, that was it. That was fast food time to start working and um, start buying some machines that would come up in the Sunday paper and things. What, what, so do you remember what you would have gotten had oh, you yeah. had the chance? F first machine was a TR-505, $75. Incredible. 
pouring through the the Sunday classifieds. Um, second machine was the two hundred two. That my dad, he was a police officer, and uh, one of his coworkers had it. wasn't using it. It's in our bed. He's like, "I'll sell it to you for fifty bucks." So my dad asked me, "Do you want to buy the synthesizer for fifty dollars?" <laughs> guys got. And I said, "Sure," and he brought it home and uh, went through the book and did all the little sound programming and was kind of baffled that even though it had a DIN plug on it, it wouldn't sync to the drum machine. So I saw the MIDI and I'm like, it plugs in, but it doesn't start. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing a lot of people that, especially that aren't studio producers don't realize is that all these old machines, they didn't really just connect together so easily like people might imagine. You know? right. It's a little easier these days to get everything running together. Definitely. But it was a good challenge, so I um, worked with that and just synthesizers trying some and would find some that worked some that didn't and mm-hmm. um, had a Commodore 64 so aside from the games and stuff I had some MIDI sequencing that I learned how to do on there nice big cartridge I plugged in <laughs> <laughs> that was good so um, I mean you were what'd you say 13 14 at this point mm-hmm. so you you actually 86. you got the bug long before um, discovering a house party or a rave or anything like oh, yeah. that I, was, I mean I, I guess I could assume at that time it was probably more like Depeche Mode or kind of it was you know, uh, new wave bands that you kind of a lot of the synth pop stuff that I was hearing. Um, there was some electro, just early hip hop stuff, just a little bit. I'd hear some stuff on the radio. There wasn't mm-hmm. much exposure because I just you know didn't yeah, didn't have course. access to it yet. But when I would hear those things come on, um, they stood out. So I was interested in how was that being made. And were you in Duluth at that point, or where were you? No, I was in, in the Twin Cities here. Oh, you were? I grew okay. up in Burnsville. And I moved to Duluth when I graduated in 1990. Um, and by that point... For college, right? Or yep, just, UMD. Okay. Well, for college, yes, but it was also basically San Francisco with snow. So yeah. it's a good way to spend the winter on the hills there. And uh, by that point, it was all industrial music and lots of hip-hop and just a lot of stuff using samplers and... Mm-hmm. Um, it had expanded by that point, but I didn't have a much exposure to dance music um, that was going on, you know, out in New York or in Europe or things like that, aside yeah. from whatever I could find um, on random tapes and things like at Northern Lights Music and, and stuff mm-hmm. that I would stop at. And was it, uh, so was it Duluth actually where you ended up finding your first taste of like more dance music then, like techno, house, whatever, acid or? Yeah, there was um, at Electric Fetus up there. Uh, John Swanson, he would get some stuff in. Um, there was a guy who, oh, on Tuesday nights up at KUMD. It was Tuesday Night Todd, and he would play uh, some of the more obscure stuff that was just interesting to hear. Um, flyers were coming out. The stuff that was going on in Minneapolis, you know, the mm-hmm. more parties and things that were starting. I went to the first one, uh, 93, in there. It was called Hellbent. It's in Minneapolis. And... Um, once once I saw that whole situation with the sound and the systems and nothing like what I'd had, it was yeah. just a whole nother level of, of, of sound and craziness um, in what was going on within the music that then I'm like, this, this is good. This is for me, <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, a lot of people can kind of remember that first party or that first kind of introduction where uh, you're like, this is... 
you, you just sucked in, especially if there's anything you're interested in, whether it's the music itself or you're kind of a equipment nerd or something or, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, party people, they have their own reasons. Uh, you're instantly sucked in when you see that environment and it's like kind of full form. And so after that, you were you just writing that you, you just started pumping it out and then you met Woody and gave him stuff or how did that work? Well, what happened was um, I had a bunch of machines and um, I have great memories of having this stuff all set up in an attic, an unfinished attic in Duluth. It was like a hundred and some degrees hmm. with one extension cord running from the kitchen up into this attic and things plugged in and, and just programming up there. And um, this was after I'd been to that hellbent party and, uh, just trying to make new types of sounds and, and things with the machines. And I was getting some, just from the flyers and things that were going on, just starting to see names and things like that. And um, I made some tapes and I gave one to Woody um, at a party down here. Mm-hmm. And um, he would get some feedback to me and there was one track then that he wanted. And so he said, can you send me the master? And I said, well, that, that's the tape I left with you. That's it. Yeah. Just recording to cassette. So uh couldn't couldn't press off that. But that was, mm, man. That was time to try to get a DAT machine then. And that was but good. Did you use a DAT or did you use a VCR machine the, the No no this this was a DAT. I got a a Tascam DAT machine that I tracked down. Nice. And, uh, then made a whole slew of tracks and that whole group when I first got the DAT machine kinda of turned into some of those early releases that ended up Nice. Um well, so I don't have Discogs in front of me, just going off of uh, everything I remember. Would you say, like, Surfing Superior was the first, like, big record that you kind of came out with at the time, or was there something before that that kind of blew up? Well, the Son of Gonzo one right before that had a track that ended up on a compilation in France by DJ Olive, and that, the other artists on there were pretty established. Regis was on there, and there was a bunch of people, Lord mm-hmm. Grab and all these people, um... And so to get included with that, I think, helped just kind of get the information out there. And Woody, at that point, by the time my release came out, he had established the label to such a point that people were watching what was coming out. So Mm -hmm. I I was fortunate to be kind of in that pocket of um, stuff coming out. So there was an initial pressing of 1,000 of the double pack and then a repress of 1,000, I believe. Okay. I think it... it is it going for quite a bit these days? I know for a while it was fetching a nice penny on this. For discounts. a while. Yeah, I yeah. always wondered. There's got to be some more of those around. That's I, think, what, I think Nigel had some out at 611 in Philly. I think they had yeah. some out there. <laughs> if, if, but no. you know, but that's the thing. I, I don't know if it was on the podcast recently or somebody. I was talking to someone, and, you know, they had a record that was like 75 bucks, and I know I had the copy. I'm like, all right, I know where I'm going <laughs> if rent money is a little light one month. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, I mean, so at that point, that's around 96. It was 96, um, and I I finished up then the tracks that became Surf and Superior, and I had given them that, and um, it followed up shortly after. And when that one came out, then uh, Frankie Bones ended up putting some of those tracks into Mm -hmm. some mixes and things that he was doing with the Factory series, and um, that That blew it up, too. Yeah. So... Um, I mean, were you starting to play out quite a bit at this point or still mainly just putting out records or? I, well, I was doing local shows in Duluth. Yeah. Like I would drag the machines out and play at the coffee shop there. I did yeah. a lot of end of night sets, you know, it's like 6 a.m. It's really chill yeah. stuff. Um, 
so I was playing for a number of years just up there when shows would come up and people mm -hmm. would have me come play. Um, and then some Minneapolis shows when those releases were coming out. Um, but I don't know exactly. It was slowly branching because I, I would get invited to go play Fargo. Mm -hmm. Stuff that was going on up there. And then there was a few parties um, the next year or two down around Chicago and Milwaukee mm -hmm. that I was going to. And it was slowly kind of branching out. Yeah. Starting to reach out more and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I um, I think, I guess I've met you about 15 years ago now. Something like so that. What? 2001. It's crazy how quick time <laughs> flies, you know? Um, yeah, me and Ian, we showed up at your doorstep one night. That's funny. Um, but yeah, so at, at that point, you, you know, by the time I had met you, you had quite a bit going on. Uh, you had your label started called Tone Wrecker. Right. That came up, um, Dietrich Schoenemann out in New York, part of Prototype 909. He had started up a distribution company and mm -hmm. had asked if I wanted to do a label. And I'm, I have no interest in business. I'm, mm -hmm. It's not anything that I have. Yeah, you were just like to do. you but, had the creative but, side of it. You know, I'm, I was getting a lot of music from people that I liked and knew, and um, it seemed like an interesting opportunity. And I told him, you know, I will get music. And um, Cody Hudson, Struggling, did awesome logo yeah. that he put together. And it's still a cool logo. With yeah, the, it's, it's great. It's a, a tank with a bullhorn for yep. those of you that have not <laughs> seen the records or the logo. Yeah. Cody, Cody does good stuff. So it's a great logo, and I gave that to Dietrich, and they would start sending, you know, releases out there. And he ran that for a while. Um, so I think the sixth, fifth or sixth release, and then Harvey Lane at Vito mm -hmm. picked it up um, as he was expanding distribution and, uh, and then took it from there and I think went up to about the 13th I think release I have 13, on vinyl. Yeah. The, the last one was a digital digital one that we put on. Okay. And then, then that was that was time to wrap it up. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about. Is there ever do you ever foresee a return? I know you're a busy dude, but <laughs> no, just no I'm interest. happy to put the music in other Elsewhere. people's hands. Let and them do they, with they know it. what they're doing with it. But do you? I'm, well, I mean, in fairness, what a lot of people should know is you do. It's not that um, you. I mean, you're putting a lot out on your Bandcamp, for example. So it's not like you necessarily need to have an outlet to release stuff because if you want to you just release some odds and ends there correct sure yeah I, I, some of the kind of just obscure things i'll drop up there but you know, when labels are asking for stuff um and i have something that i think is worth them listening to i'll send it to them and the stuff on Bandcamp that i put i usually wait a year or so till it's been out and then yeah. it's more back catalog stuff i'll put up there for people to get at but um just the requests that come in asking for stuff is leads to just a lot of interesting people mm -hmm. you get to meet and yeah. well it's 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 an interesting thing because um i mean i don't really like uh i don't want to refer to it as like a comeback of sorts because you haven't never really disappeared you've always you've always kind of been steady and having things coming out here mm -hmm. and there but i feel like maybe in the last two or three years like people are there's a new generation that's kind of rediscovering a lot of this stuff or whatever or you know, old records are taking on new mixes. I know you've been on Mord and a couple of these other uh, kind of popular labels at the moment. And, yeah, uh, Sunil with Earwiggle. Um, after that record that I did with Freddie Fresh came out on Earwiggle, and um, there was a track on there that, that Acid Youth, the Malibu one, that 
piece kind of took off and got more exposure and Mord was getting going and mm-hmm. there was a remix record that Sunil put together then um, that had just good lineup on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, when that happened, and I, I've gotten requests for a long time from over in Europe to come play and things, but um, since I don't have booking agency or didn't at that time, mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to juggle, you know, I have a regular full-time day job and yeah. um, family and Yeah, you're a family man, you're and, responsible, and it's... It's a fun thing for you. It's not a you're not a right. You're not searching out the career like a lot of people are. Right. You know, I'm I'm doing this if nobody's else is listening or anything. This mm-hmm. is what keeps me interested in stuff. Um it's awesome that other people like it and I'm happy to share it, but um the traveling stuff now that uh Tim and Mike get packed are kind of handling the bookings and can put together some of those here's a promoter over here and they want to do a flight share over mm-hmm. here. Um, it's worked out well that I can do a few more weekends a year to go over. And- yeah, I've, I've noticed definitely you're coming over to Europe a lot more. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, and and you, you're coming back again, what is it, in the summer or quite soon? I, I don't quite remember. End of this month. Uh, End of this month already. Paris and uh, Tresor, 29th and 30th of April. Uh, I'll be home, which is Tresor, Friday or Saturday night? Saturday night. <laughs> I think I have a gig, but if not, I'll come around. Good. Uh, last, yeah, last time I saw you, I think, was when you played at Berghain there. Yeah, that was yeah. the fall of uh, 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's great. You, you you know, people are kind of paying attention right now, and you got something going, but still at the same time, like tonight I took you away from uh, Studio Duty. You're working on a remix, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so you're kind of limited on the time because as, as we established, you got kids and job and everything, and so... Um, one thing I've also noticed from you is you, uh, you're like a guy that never sleeps. Is that still the case or is that kind of I, winding I do, down? I do sleep, but um, you know, I'm able to just do 20-hour days pretty much. I know. That's incredible. Ongoing, mm. And it's – I mean, you're, you're a, a fairly healthy dude, so it's mm-hmm. like uh, – I mean, I don't know. I, I know some athletic people and even they can't keep that kind of schedule. You know what I mean? It's just uh, – it's wild. I was joking. You know, someday I'll just go into a ten-year coma or something. But you know, there, there's nights where <laughs> well, I do, you can't where do I that do anymore. Long, you got kids now. Where I do put in a long, you know, sleep. If I'm tired, I'll sleep. But I, I'm fortunate in that I can just, you know, lay down, go right into dreams, and just wake up and be good to go. Crazy. And I mean, like, for as long as I've known you, it's kind of been like that. You yeah, it's know, been I'm, like that since I was a little kid. But I mean, you, I mean, you eat healthy. You're not a party animal or anything. No. So it's like there's no special. You don't uh, have this regimen that makes you able to do that. It's just something you do. Yeah, it's just you know, and like I, you hear about people that do that. Like I really hate to bring up uh, or even connect you to it, but like Donald Trump, for example, he's a guy that is known like for years <laughs> that was like would sleep four hours a night, and that's okay. just kind of what he does. And you hear about the, those people sometime and. I kind of wish I had that ability <laughs> because every day, especially like right now, I'm kind of in a busy period. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I wish I could do four more hours or at least my brain, you know, be focused on something. And it's just not possible. Part of it too is that after doing this, you know, I used to be able to just have the time where I could start working on something. And part of it was that if you're recording to dad, you had to finish the song. Yeah. You couldn't save anything and come back. So you had to work on it. So if you went a whole day working on this, you had to, do it mm-hmm. or you're going to lose it. Um, and now I kind of find myself, I've 
got kind of three different modes of studio work. So there'll be some nights where I just do sound design, just making noises for hours, letting stuff stream. Mm -hmm. Um, Another night when I've got a chunk of time to work, come in, go through all that, cut everything out and just make bank. This is what I've got to work with. Mm -hmm. And then another night I'll have just assembly where I've weeded through. I don't need to sit with worrying about what, what type of sound do I want? Do I like this? Do I not? It's good to go. And then I can just assemble it, whether it's in the computer, in the DAW, Mm -hmm. or put it back in the Octatrack and fire it out. I think it's a great way to do things because, um, you know, we've all had those days where, you know, for those of us that are making music that listen to the show, where you kind of sit down on on the computer or the gear and it's just not working. Right. Like, the the creativity isn't there. I'm sure it happens with the painters and all that. But you try anyway, and then you realize you wasted four hours doing nothing. Right. So those are the days that I really just decide, like, I'm going to make my own little sample CD or something mm-hmm. because you can press buttons and get sounds that are useful, but you don't know how to use them yet, you know, so... Expand but, your palette. You just put the stuff out there. Definitely. I'm, I'm definitely going to ask you about the gear situation a little bit more later because that's definitely, you're a very big advocate of it. Your Instagram account is just tons of, uh, you know, little gear uh, loops and videos and pictures. And, like, the, the thing that I find really interesting is that, um, you know, you've been around for ages and you've amassed a really nice little studio, but it seems... It seems like everything kind of gets used, too. You know, like you use what yeah, you have. Yeah, if it doesn't get used, it, it moves along. I mm-hmm. mean, I I have to put time in on it, and some things, just the workflow of it is good, and I like what I'm able to do with it. Um, some of it isn't. Some of it, I'll, I'll let sit for a while and come back to it, because sometimes it just doesn't jive right at first, And um, but I, I try to give it time. But there's certainly some machines that you work on it, and you're like, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I have no interest in holding on to any of that stuff. Put it in someone else's hands, and that allows me to use the funds for something else. And that works out well. The music stuff, you know, is its own little self-supporting pool. Nice. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Like, you've also, even though you got a nice gear, you were telling me about, like, listen, it kind of goes back to the... Um, the what we were talking about like it's a hobby like what you make gets poured back into it it's not like you're trying to you know make remixes to pay the bills or something like Correct. the you know a lot of people automatically assume that uh anybody that's trying to be a producer or a like a band member these days everybody assumes that they want that kind of success on this level of course that'd be great to have i think a lot of people wouldn't mind that but not everybody's out chasing to be um, this like top level whatever, and that's the that's the one thing that I really like because for you, when I look around on it and I see the stickers on the machines and everything and what you do and just like the the silliness and in, in the music and the playfulness, like it's it's for fun. It's not um, you know you're not taking it so seriously or trying to make something out of it or deliver some you know overly artistic you know dramatic expression or something like that nothing wrong with any of those in fact some of that describes myself but uh i mean that's one thing i really respect is these days especially with the younger kids like everybody simply just wants gigs and money or whatever that comes with that stuff and it's it's still refreshing that like you know after all these years you're just like having fun with the machines and if it comes out great if not not a big deal i've I've still entertained myself Mm -hmm. time i put in making 
making the thing. So it's, it served its purpose. Yeah. But let's, uh, you know, while we're doing the history thing and we're talking like hobbies and whatnot, I know that you're also a big fan of snowboarding and skating, for example. Sure. Yeah. In fact, we've gone out before. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I, you know, since I moved to Europe, I didn't get to go snowboarding, which is crazy because now the Alps are right? you get the an hour away by plan. The problem is, is like it's it can get kind of expensive to do that stuff out there. And um, if I'm willing to save up the money to do it, I have other friends that aren't necessarily willing to do it. Or if they if they are able to do it, like financially, they're the reason they have the money is because they're quite busy working. So right. you know, it's really hard to find people to go. But um, one part of it is is that you you're not just like I mean these days I don't know what you're riding is like but you were kind of a badass back then you were sponsored in fact even right yeah the let's see how far back we go back in the I think the end of the eighties um I started snowboarding in eighty five mm-hmm. so there were some Burton ads showing up in Thrashers back then and. uh so again, this was right about the time that I had gotten a job to save up for gear. I was also able to save up and buy a snowboard. Mm-hmm. So um, since I couldn't skate, you know, give this a go. Yeah, put it put it to use. And so there was a, just a string of years there, um, all the way through the late '80s, where none of the ski hills allowed riding. You know, you couldn't mm-hmm. bring boards there. I, I had a kind of a ritual in the fall where I would get that. the yellow pages and go through there and call every ski hill and say, do you allow snowboards? And would get the, what? No. We'll never use those here. Yeah. And it's... that was, um, there were a few spots around Minnesota then that slowly having, started having one night a week or something like mm-hmm. that, like Highland Hills and, and whatnot. And so by the time I graduated high school, um, was riding all the time and went to Duluth, um, that that was great, just having that type of terrain everywhere then. Where were you uh, riding specifically then? In for, Duluth? Yeah. I mean, Spirit uh, or? Well, yeah, or, you would get a season pass at Spirit for like $85 as a student. Mm-hmm. So you'd be out there, you know, whenever mm-hmm. and then hiking in the spring. But just riding through the streets at night, you know, there isn't much traffic. You get snow and there's street lights and mm-hmm. there's nobody around and it's just urban riding. So there was and stuff everywhere. Yeah. A lot of railings and things we found. And um, that was the second year I was up there. There was a small group that um, found out there was some stuff going on in Summit County in Colorado and kind of got the idea that we're going to move out there. And so I went with, and it was right when Joyride and a bunch of companies were kind of getting going and um, just a big influx of Midwest riders, everybody from Wisconsin and the UP mm-hmm. and around everybody who had learned to ride on the crazy hard pack and ice like the east coast had suddenly goes out to where there's, where there's nice powder nice yeah. snow and so i rode out there and just stayed in this motel room with some friends for a number of weeks and um ended up running out of money and came back and when i came back then got contacted by burton and some people had given him my name when i was out there and got on a flow team they were sending boards and gear and all that nice. stuff. I was working up at Freestyle in Duluth. D- didn't you? Didn't you have the first Burton board too, or no? Or was that, no, no? I mean, they started making boards like in the late seventies. In there, I mean, I had an old. I forget who I was talking to. Someone told me that they had the first Burton. I did buy the first Santa Cruz board that came into Cal Surf. That was in eighty nine, and that was what I had when I went out. Went out Man. west, but Burton was. 
that was right when the twin tip stuff was coming. The noses were still longer, and we would get boards into us and cut them down with the saw. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All that good stuff. Yeah. Man, you brought up Santa Cruz because, uh, you know, they had this recent uh, Screaming Hand anniversary last mm-hmm. year. And uh, they had the uh, the vinyl hand, which was like this awesome little statue. I wanted to grab it from my it's place. great art. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's iconic. And um, so I told a few friends about it. And then, of course, uh, I wasn't really sure when I was going to be back in the States, so I held off on buying it. And then, of course, like... I went to buy it two or three days after, later after I told some friends, and they were all taking pictures of it. Next thing you know, it sold out. I'm like, damn it. I, my, you know, I should have been quicker <laughs> you told on it. too many people. <laughs> that, that's what happens, man. True. But, um, so, yeah, you're, you know, I remember when we were snowboarding, for example, like, you were just bombing the hill nonstop. And, like, it, at this point still, it was, like, early 30s, which isn't, uh, it's, I mean, that's by no means a... Uh, old age by that point but like you still had more energy than i think a lot of the kids that were like 18 that were snowboarding on the hill today you know it's just fun yeah I, oh I, uh we went bob brown once oh yeah from framework yeah he you know what uh he never i don't think he'd ever been snowboarding before no. and uh <laughs> i've never seen somebody fall so badly so many times in such a short amount of time but the beauty of snowboarding is everybody goes through that oh yeah learning I've I've ate crap so many times and uh, yeah, but oh man, I, I felt so bad for him. I mean, you know, he was in pain for like a week or something like that. But the bruises. So um, I guess we'll we'll move on. So kind of getting back up to today, still making music. Are you skating or snowboarding much or what? what what's yeah, the... still skating a lot. It's out at the parks around here and stuff. So I'm 43, but it's not crazy around. It's fun. Nice. So when when you get over to Europe, do you end up skating or bring a board? Is it just no, like... No, those shows when I go, I leave work, my stuff packed, Thursday night, get on a flight, lose the time coming over, go to the Friday show, go to the Saturday show, mm-hmm. leave the Saturday show, get back to the airport, fly home Sunday, back at work Monday morning. I've been there numerous times <laughs> and it is a grind. I mean, I did it... You know, I, I was doing that when I was like 23 or 24, and it was pretty brutal for someone at that age then. I, I can't even imagine as you get older. Like, now, now I couldn't do it, period. Because I remember vividly, like you said, leaving Thursday night. Mm-hmm. I would get home from, <laughs> uh, didn't matter, Asia, South America, Europe, about 1 a.m. on Sunday night, if I'm lucky. And then 7 a.m., I'd have to be back at the office. Right. And, uh, it's go time. <laughs> just thinking about it now, I I don't even necessarily believe myself that I did it, but I have all the proof in the world, you know. You but there. it's uh yeah, I mean it's it's a pretty demanding thing and that that's the other part. Like when you when you go to Europe you don't really have uh the luxury of staying longer because because of having kids and the job and everything. Right. So. That's the downside is that you know, there's there's so many interesting things within the scene and just the string culture there that would be awesome to just be able to hang out and take Mm -hmm. that in. And um, there's been a few times, um, you know, where I stay a day or so and see some stuff. Um, But for the most part, I got to zoom back. (laughs) Do you ever see like a longer stay coming up or? Uh, At this point, no, just because work training and all that good stuff going on. But you don't, you don't think you like schedule a little vacation a few days just to decompress or anything or it's possible yeah see what longer happens I'm at, longer i'm at my job i get more vacation time so there you go schedule it out uh so while you're at it 
when you head over at the end of this month, you said you're at Chisora and where else? Uh, the other party is a Mord versus Earwiggle night in Paris. Okay. That's being put on, so that's a big, I'm, big lineup. Have you played in Paris recently or at all? Or uh, There was a warehouse party a few months back. Oh, yeah, that's right. Blo- Blockhouse, I think, or something. Blockhouse. Then trying to think. It was... I, I did see on that lineup, but... We'll, we'll put a list in the links, mm. the ones that were in but, there. But anyway, uh, I really think Paris is going off right now. Um, it's busy. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, a lot of people kind of will say, you know, Berlin, London, New York. I mean, those cities definitely are, are vibrant as well. But I think Paris is uh, just as busy as these other cities. I mean, of course, like I think Berlin has... Uh, you know, if you go on the resident advisor site for any given weekend, there's probably literally like 60 to 70 events listed, but a lot of them are crap. I mean, there's still, there's, you know, there's going to be a dozen great ones because the city's just that wild. But, um, you know, in Paris, there's always going to be a handful of like really, you know, events that are worth your money, whether it's like a Mord night where the music is hammering or mm-hmm. there's going to be something a little bit more like housey, funky, whatever. Maybe you got a you know Chris Liebing type thing. It just depends, but there's there's all of that there on a, on a given weekend. So that's when I'm missing out when I get to stay and, and check everything. That's out. That's right. But and and uh, so that's a warehouse one though. Yeah, actually here. Oh, there we go. Oh, this is the one that's coming up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't I know. Is a reminder? I got a program. I want to say it's called. Blockhouse or something like that. I can't really pronounce it so well, but it's a it's a promising looking lineup. Basmoy from Mord. He's a, actually a lot of people don't realize is I spent my first kind of big push in uh, Europe was 2006. I had been there the before that. Stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. when I was kind of this is like not at the well. Yeah, I guess towards the tail end of the attack people thing. We did like the Awakenings Festival and. Uh, Another gig or two in Rotterdam, like Boss hooked it up. And so um, we actually stayed in this kind of abandoned, um, I guess it was a school, but it was an abandoned building, and it was called anti-squatting. Like, you get paid to stay there so the (laughs) squatters don't stay. Sure. And so we just, we had this whole school building to uh, ourselves, basically, and it was an interesting way to spend a good portion of the summer. So, yeah, fond memories, and I'm really happy that... uh, that the label's going really well for him right now. Are you, do you have future stuff coming up for it at all? Yeah, or? I've got an EP I'm working right now to get to him, so that hopes to be wrapped here within the month so he can get it in the in the mix of stuff that's coming. He's he's busy. He's got a lot of stuff. Oh, man, the, the label's just pumping it out right now, and it's uh, it's incredible. Like, you know, I, I have things that I want to release on my label, but I, I can't get them out quick enough because it's either... I drag my feet or the uh, the designer or the artist or the distributor, but he's got the system and it's just, it's popping off. But it's a good thing to be associated with. And just looking at the lineup, you got Sunil, Boss, uh, Netha's this newer, uh, Praising Talent. There's lots of good stuff, so we have a good time. I asked if there's any questions from the people. You oh, want to take okay. some of those? Sure. Let's, let's hear. Let's hear what is on the minds of the listeners. Some of them are a bit silly, but I figure you're just the man to answer those questions. Ask away. If you could be any kitchen appliance, what would you be and why? A blender. A blender. 
<laughs> that is That's the tool given, that gets used every day. Um, easy, easy cleanup and it's functional. There you go. <laughs> Uh, more on the serious tip here. Somebody was talking about how, uh, you know, you, you are a guy that like sets up equipment real quick. Like you can, you come into a venue and like, you, I, I guess assume cause you have so much of it, you're able to really, you just got it down to a science now, right? Sometimes. Yeah. Like, I mean, sometimes the, the I don't know what kind of setup I'm going to get. So the table layout might be weird. There isn't much room. Um, I'm, I'm just used to setting the stuff up so it's just been having to put it together and take it down yeah because so i mean times you you know when you do your live sets do you bring out a computer at all anymore or no no so it's all mostly it, on so, the octatrack and a bunch of other things yep, but it's all it's all just so yeah synths drum machines i mean that, that's kind of crazy when you think about it like because these days it's they're trying to go after you for luggage. They always have, but now, like, maybe more so than ever. And in Europe, they're always picking things. But you always seem to fit it all in. Two backpacks. Two backpacks crazy. get carried on as a carry-on. The the piece there that is kind of the workaround is that I have a little Chromebook that I have in one of the backpacks. So technically, you can have your computer bag and a personal bag. So my two backpacks, I've got my Nice, there you go. On. And then I just check a bag that's got all the wires that they can throw around and that's where it gets heavy is the wires. People don't realize that. Yeah. So uh, what are your thoughts on the BeatStep Pro? It's an okay machine. Um, I know there's been a lot of bugs and some people have had serious issues. Um, I'm always willing to give it time for them to work stuff out. A lot of those early release things come out and there's all sorts of hiccups and problems. And over time it gets sorted. Um, I'm not relying on the piece as any sort of central it's handy to have around, it's basically. It's nice to have in the studio. I, I don't take it out to any shows. Um, so any of the glitches or things that come up occasionally, I'm just recording stuff in the studio. So um, I hope they get it sorted out, some yeah. of the issues that are... I, thought, I think it's a fun machine, and I agree with you that basically on all that. But For the price and portability and the functionality, it's pretty hard to beat. Um you're not going to be able to make a machine that works and does everything for everybody. So there'll be, you know, some people that it just doesn't suit what they need it to do. But, and some of that comes down to, you just, you have to try it. And yeah. Either definitely. Uh, snowboarding question. Why are tinny grabs not cool? What? <laughs> Put that one in. Seema Lawrence. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think. I, I don't even know if I do that many grabs. I'm just a lot of ollies. I don't know. I personally, I have, a, I have a good picture from uh, Big Sky Montana long ago with some neon gear on and a big slob air, <laughs> leg extended that uh, my parents had gotten made as a poster at some point. <laughs> really? out there, yeah. So do you still have the poster then? Uh, I think I got rid of it at some point. Was, I, I didn't need to see all that neon gear. <laughs> But that's kind of what, like, uh, that's that's one of these things these days. Like, a lot of the kids, that whole thing it kind of has come back around again where it's getting a little wild. You know, like, that's the one thing that also I'm kind of glad that I missed out on um, growing up on the ski hills and stuff is that the whole, I mean, there was always a certain fashion to it, but now it's like literally every season the kids got to have the newest stuff and everything, and I, I wouldn't be able to afford anything like that. these or Well, as a child these days, obviously, you know. 
What about albums like uh, techno techno side? People were asking like, what you know, some of your favorite ones that just kind of resonated with you that hmm. just general releases of music. Yeah, you know, um, the early stuff, um, Black Flag, first four years, Minor Threat, um, a lot of that stuff. You know, when I listened to it, it was it was just so full of energy that. I'd listen to it now and it's still the same, you know, kind of gut feeling of stuff that's captured in there, which is, which is great. Um, a lot of the drop bass stuff that I was listening to, you know, before I ever sent Kurt any, anything in the, Mm -hmm. in the higher number of releases that came out, um, just because it was so, to my ears, just out of control sounding that, you know, the parties we'd go to then and stuff, you know, playing 200 beats per minute and, these noises you just wonder where you know where does this stuff come from so i I still throw that stuff on and and listen to it and it's great nice so uh, you know you you cited like black flag we talked about like some of the synth pop stuff from back in the day the early stuff a little bit of drop bass um you also said that like you were getting into hip-hop a lot any kind of name checking you want to do there um the stuff that was coming out when I just thought it was really interesting. Again, this was high school stuff, and a lot of it was just so new because tapes and things were showing up. And it was Eric B. and Rakim, and um, there was a Stetsa Sonic song that I was really into um, just because it had a really good groove. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff was so just repetitious and didn't change much, and then some things just had a, a great groove, and I would hear those. and. Um, I regret, you know, all those cases of cassettes that I had not been around oh, anymore because yeah. that stuff would be fun to listen to. But over the years, they, they got lost somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, it, you know, some people, like I know, for example, Ben Sims on Instagram, he's an avid collector of like getting the record, the CD, the tape, like it all on formats, like collect the whole set. Right, and I'm just it's got backup. And, yeah, well, I mean that's that's kind of uh, I've noticed some people are kind of doing that now. Like it's just kind of a fun thing to do to be like, uh, you know, I got got the whole kind of realm with it. Or if there was a T-shirt that came with the album or mm-hmm. something, and I just think like, man, I can't believe how many tapes and CDs they threw at them. Like, I got MP3s now. I'll never need this crap again. <laughs> you know, or like even DVDs. I had it. I mean, some people you go into their houses and they have a DVD collection that spans the entire wall right and first of all i'm like where'd you get the money for all that because they were like 20 bucks at the time you know and it's i guess i don't know what they cost these days or blu-rays now or whatever but or um and of course i threw all that out because i was like well it's the digital era and i don't want to carry these discs but now i kind of wish i still had it all so a box full of hard drives yeah Yeah. this one well in in like uh i think i went into this also recently i'm i've just come to this realization that the newer generations don't even download files anymore. Um, it's all streaming. You know what right. I mean? So yeah, stuff like that kind of is, doesn't make you feel old, but you're just like, whoa, okay, the, the generation shift, is it's here already. Yeah. It's good. It's good, though. You find out new ways to do things, and then you get new ideas, and keeps you thinking. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. Um, another question that I got... Uh, fellow friend of ours mike schroeder he uh he wants to know what you, how do you you don't do so many collaborations these days but 
what he wants to know what the best method you would think is for collaboration if you're not able to be in the same studio. Um, I, I guess it would probably be you have to determine first what um, just what working options do both parties have. I did a collaboration with Mike Parker um, maybe about two years ago, and obviously did know, that come out or yeah yeah that came out. Um, Maybe a year and a half ago, it was on the brothers label, so okay, each side had a, a track collaboration on there, and uh, you know he's got he's got a awesome studio, cool machines, um, but because of our locations, you know he's out on the east coast of New York, mm-hmm. and I'm here. Um, I had him just record a bunch of you know just different pieces and and things, get an idea. And then um, you kind of I worked I worked over those pieces, and was actually able to build a click track. <laughs> I was like, I'm go back to when I used to sync things up with the old KMS30 off a of click, and we'll see see how we can make this work. Um, so I was able to get that piece running, and uh, I th- I think it turned out well. But that was that was kind of I, the last one. I got to check it out because I mean I. I keep up on both of you guys, yet somehow I missed that one. But uh, I'll check it out. Because I don't promote things very well. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to get in that way, too, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, like, I have the channels, and I do try to promote, but sometimes I feel like it's just a lost cause, or I can't be bothered to spend the money to get Facebook likes or something like that, you know? When it comes down to collaboration, like, in my opinion, you were... Like you said, you got to first know what people are working on. But I think the most important thing for, uh, before you even start the process is knowing who you're going to collaborate with. Right. Um, like, for example, I have some friends that I respect so much as producers or whatever, or I play their records. But then I just think, you know what, there's no point in really trying to do a collab record because I don't see what the elements from both of our things would would mesh together. Sure. I mean, that's not always the, who knows, like maybe like you and I have both done techno stuff, but maybe we would make a great drum and bass record. Who knows? But, uh, just generally speaking, if we were both considering the idea of doing a techno thing, like would it work? Wouldn't it work? It depends on who you're going to deal with. And I think you got to find someone that can, um, fill in the spots where you probably have a weakness and vice versa. And then, basically however you're going to go from there like you said you made the click track some people can do just open an ableton file um right just depends but i think you'll have more success when you figure out exactly who's going to kind of do what that's the first step freddie and i when we collaborated on that stuff i mean the best part of that was just hanging out together Mm -hmm. in the studio and he's got you know some great machines over there and stuff i hadn't played on yeah and um, just spending that time and they're just streaming stuff for a long, long time and, and hanging out ended up, you know, I wasn't sure what was going to come out of it, but I didn't. That's know. some nice things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, 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 um, I mean, that's a big part of it, though, is I think a lot of when you hear uh, it's not even a techno thing, it's hip hop bands, whatever. When you hear these great albums or singles or something like that. It's because a lot of them are friends and they're just kind of hanging out. You know, you 
go skating or go out for a drink or play the Xbox or something for a bit together. And then you kind of like, all right, let's just see what happens. Let's turn on the machines. Tony Rohr, uh, there were multiple times he would come out and yeah, hang and out. stay a little and, longer, right? Yeah, I mean, we were listening to Mitch Hedberg albums and just, mm-hmm. just being hanging ridiculous. Out. Yeah, it was great. We would get work done, but yeah, getting, getting yeah, time I, to hang out. I remember so that. It was good. I remember there was some times that he was around here just when I had moved to Minneapolis mm-hmm. ages ago, and he was kind of, you know, you'd set aside a couple of days to get it done. Right. Now, both of you are family men, so it's not not so easy anymore, but good times. Uh, so do you, like you did, what was the name be- with you and Tony? Was it Professor Etard oh. Plurby, or is that right? Or Yeah, Professor Plurby and Dr. Etard. Oh, that, that's what it is, yes. yeah. Was that Hidden Agenda or Tone Wrecker? I can't that remember. That came out on uh, Tone Wrecker. It was Tone Wrecker 2. Um, yeah. I remember cracking up when we came up with that name. It's a good name. <laughs> uh, for people that don't know, it's more just kind of rave jokes, basically. But um, so, I mean, you did that stuff. You did with Freddie. You did uh, Freddie Fresh. You did tracks with mm-hmm. uh, Scott Radke. You did Rockin', which was sample-based. Um, yeah, and, you know, Scott and I owned the house for a while together. So we, mm-hmm. he was running High Pass and um, had lots of good stuff going on. Yeah. Bob Brown. Bob Brown, was living that's there right. for a while. We, <laughs> we had all sorts of fun stuff going on in there. Crazy times, for sure. I mean, like, the thing is, is when um, when that whole period was kind of going on, that was another one of those people be staying over, and then, you, like I said, hanging out before, you just get on the machines when you're feeling it. Not like these days, I think a lot of people, when they produce, they feel this urge that they like we have to get something done you know like for example i um lately i haven't been able to just because i've been swamped but i used to go to stockholm quite a bit and work with tracks work on tracks with joel mall okay and i'd go there for like i don't know four or five days or something but realistically speaking we get like a good day or day and a half of uh, studio time and the rest would just kind of be screwing around having fun and but that that's like i said that's part of it you know just to kind of get into the get into the mood, you know. Yeah, you never know what's going to come out of it. Um, my friend TJ TJR, mm-hmm. and you know his he's kind of taken a turn and gone into a different direction with his music, but he would you know call with questions because he he was DJ for a long time and wanted to get into producing. He was super excited, and he would call and we would just talk a long time going through stuff mm-hmm. trying to explain and, and and I remember just telling him like why don't you just fly out here and it would be easier to uh, learn this stuff if you're just here and he showed up and we ended up being great friends and it's been cool to see his career go where it's taken him but uh, yeah I mean uh, to be honest I, I haven't followed it so closely lately what he's going I remember some of the older stuff but it, from what I hear it's really blowing up yeah, yeah. I mean, he just went different direction, doing all the bounce stuff, and um, he's such a good DJ to start with. That in kind of that realm, you know, he just he just excels performing in there, and the music, you know, he's got good production chops. He's put in a lot of time mm-hmm. working on stuff, and it's not stuff that you know to my ear that I would say like I'm super into this, but I 
when I hear it, it's it's authentic, you know, to the yeah. style it is. And that, I think that catches my it. ear a lot. I may not totally be into a certain style of music, but if it's authentic to what it is, um, that pretty much, you can usually tell that stands out and yeah, it'll hold up against other stuff. I agree. I mean, like, I, I can think of some things off the top of my head. Like, uh, I mean, I know since you're not DJ and you don't pay attention to a lot of these things, but, like, there's a couple these records that I guess would maybe be better fit for like tech house clubs and Ibiza or something. I hear them and it's not music that I really want anything to do with, but you're like, okay, whoever the producers behind this, like they legitimately, that's what they're into. It's not, you know, they just really have that vibe and it's, it's really well done. I'm not going to play it. I'm not going to listen to it, but you're like, all right, this is, I'm into it. Appreciate it for what it is. Yeah. And, um, I think that's kind of, a a thing that's, getting lost on people in general but especially in, in dance music like these days it's getting really um i don't want to say diver- diversified because it's not so diverse but it, it's kind of split up and clicky or like uh you know for example if a person likes a paul birkin record they might not like uh i don't know a sven faith record or something like that mm-hmm. you know something more funky and it's like well uh there used to be a time when you could like both or you appreciate it. And some people won't even give the other thing the time of day now. And, um, that's kind of sad, you know, they're missing out. (laughs) I agree completely. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've said it on the show before. I'm vocal, very vocal about appreciating a lot of different things, you know, and that's, that's, I think I noticed that with you two in the car, like we've been able to listen to like Christian Vogel and then maybe put on Jeff Mills, the exhibitionist or something like it goes across the spectrum, Mm -hmm. you know? So that being said, um, when you do get a chance to, I don't know, download sets or check out records, is there anything that's kind of doing it for you right now that you can think of? The last few things, a lot of the stuff that I've gotten lately has been projects that are sent over for me to work on. So I'll listen to them and then try to find out if there's a track in there Mm -hmm. that catches my ear. And I like that rather than having just like, this is the track Mm -hmm. whenever there's that that option. Because inevitably there'll be one where I'm listening to it and I'm suddenly like, okay, that's the one. Yeah. Um, But it's... So much good stuff coming out lately. I mean, I, I buy, I buy a lot of stuff on Bandcamp, and uh, just because I like the convenience. You know, oh I yeah, drive I'm, to work I'm every a big day. Order of it. Um, you know, I buy the releases. I buy the stuff on Mord, and just so I've got it on there, and um, the stuff on Perk, and and all these other labels and Earwiggle, and um. It's just it's just good to have and listen to, and I, I like being able to support. You know, even though I know a lot of these people, and um, a lot of them are happy to send me the promo of it or whatnot. You mm-hmm. know, and when I can, I'm I'm happy to buy the releases because I know it costs a lot to run a label. Big time, <laughs> you know, and uh, also being an artist, it's also nice when something does come back your way on the audit. It doesn't have to be much, but even if like, you know, for example, my, my record recently came out and some friends in Minneapolis picked up the record and I'm very appreciative of that. You know what I mean? Like they mm-hmm. could have just gotten it anyway or illegally download it like everybody else. But it's just kind of like, okay, I appreciate that. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what, what would you call a respect thing? Thanks thing. Something like it's that. Gesture. Gesture. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's a good feeling. And yeah. 
So that being said, you know, there's also uh, you you have a wide range of music, but sometimes it's it's a little bit more wild and 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 hammering compared to some forms of techno. Like that kind of seems that sound seems to have a little bit of a renaissance right now. Does that give you um, any sort of uh, does it kind of get you going again a little bit more excited to pump out more or are you just kind of like I, I don't have time still no I, I think it's um, it just gets my mind going because I like seeing and hearing what other people are doing mm-hmm. with the stuff um, part of the reason you know is, is more machines are showing up in people's studio setups and stuff um, it's just I, I have this kind of odd correlation between music and skateboarding in that my mind you know when I'm walking around you look at architecture and things you are kind of assessing and seeing like well I could do that with that and you know you you start Mm -hmm. to see lines and all these different ways that you could interact with the terrain and I see that with equipment as well and so when I see people's setups and, and what they're doing then it gets my mind going and I started thinking, well, you could run that over to that. And, and that, that's more difficult when they're running a software setup because you can't see what's all set yeah. up in there and whatnot. So when I see a table full of machines that are, you know, doing stuff, um, it just gets my gears going. So I hear you. See what comes up with that. I mean, I, you know, I, I can go to friend studios or I can look at this stuff right now and, and kind of, you know, when you, when you see things laid out a different way or, pieces of gear you may not have and you see some knobs getting turned you're like i kind of want to do that it's kind of like if you go to you know the movie theaters and you see i don't know some stupid movie like fast and the furious or something then you get in the car and you're like automatically you're a nascar driver or something you step on the gas a bit more you get a little amped up little little improvisation there (laughs) so um yeah let's chat a little bit about the gear i I try not to do it so much on the show because there's a lot of people that to have no idea about production stuff, but uh, you're definitely a gear guy. Um, looks like you're, like a lot of people, you're pretty heavily into the modular thing at the moment. Um, would you say that's kind of something that you're still uh, investing most of your time in on, or? Mm, it, it's just part of the, the stuff that's there. I mean, the, over the years, that setup has kind of always existed with patch bays and everything stuff, so it kind of always mm-hmm. getting routed around. Um, the options that are coming out in modules and things are just beyond a lot of what you could get in a rack effect or, or different things that I've had exposure to. So it's fun to try what some of that stuff is. Um, and it does yield, you know, a lot of times it yields just horrendous, unusable oh, yeah. junk, but that, throw it away and <laughs> try it again. Mm-hmm. What And one of the one things that I've found really interesting is uh and i'm looking at the screen now you're doing a lot of your editing actually in soundforge or i mean like arrangements rather yeah well part of that that workflow you know where i end up cutting things down get the sound and then i'll do just a a jam um you know i make i make mistakes and stuff when playing so a lot of the stuff is me just jamming out getting the arrangement and then I will go find the pieces. Take the pieces you like. Yeah. Right, because I'm just recording to a stereo track mm-hmm. off the board and go cut that. Here's an intro. Here's <laughs> yeah. you know, here's a section where it builds some, 
Is this, and it, I think I've probably gotten into some trouble with that over the years because I don't DJ, and I, I'm sure my records aren't as DJ friendly as they could be. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe not as easy to mix in and out of. But uh, going through them in my mind, they make sense. So that that's probably detrimental in that I'm not DJing, so they they're not laid out in exactly the most friendly way to play in the mix. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there's something to be said that for that, though. Like, a lot of these old records, they were made for DJs, but they didn't take into consideration this kind of professionalism that DJs have now where everything's, like, on the 4, the 16, the 32, and stuff like that. Like, uh, well, actually, lately, I've been doing a lot more live jam-based tracks, so it's not on the timing. But, like, my, my album and stuff like that was very... Uh, academic of sorts as far as sure. like keeping it very organized and the arrangement made logical sense but uh, I think there's something to be said when it's you know you're not maybe the counting isn't right or there is a little bit of fluctuation in speed like that kind of stuff can really drive a perfectionist crazy but that's also what makes some things interesting you know you take someone like Terrence Dixon mm-hmm. that guy is <laughs> all over the place some of his tracks just don't make sense they're they're atonal, all that stuff, and but people, some circles worship him as a god. You know what I mean? And just so, it just depends what what gets you going. I mean, like for I know, for example, you're also a big fan of punk. I love punk, and for me, one of the greatest things about it is that it sounds absolutely horrendous. You know what I mean? But I, I but there's really, an energy there. No, there's yeah. an energy. There's a sincerity. There's mm-hmm. like. Despite the the low fidelity and the distortion and the fact that the dude can't sing and the guitarist can't even play the guitar, I'm still obsessed with that because it's so pure and and true and that leaks through no matter how poor the skill is or the sound quality, you know? Right. So moral of the story there is imperfection can be nice if if it has a certain insincerity or... Sorry, certain sincerity. All right, I'm not going to go there, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know about. what you're saying. Yeah, um, but we're getting towards the uh, towards the end of the podcast here. I wanted to see if you have any dates you want to plug, remixes, releases. There's um, something you got to get off your chest. <laughs> a few things coming out. Um, we can put a link into them there. I'm going to be playing in Chicago uh, June 3rd coming up, uh, Montreal, May 20th, I believe going up and then, um, going over for three days in June, um, back to France and Prague. Excellent. Up, so got some nice dates coming up. Yeah. Cool. A few things each month. Uh, anything else, any shout outs or releases or anything like that? I'm just happy. You know, anybody wants to tune in and listen to this, um, School share information and what about your what about your band camp is it just paulberkin.bandcamp.com or i believe so i've got a fan one i was there today but i don't remember the url i'm pretty sure yeah it's just my name okay (laughs) just type paul birkin uh band camp if uh you're looking from his old releases or if if you're just discovering them now check it out the youtube channel usually has kind of promo clips of what's coming up i go make video chops of stuff on there. See, yes, I'm sorry to cut you off, but you got stuff on there. See, I keep getting told 
you know, you got to have a YouTube channel and all this stuff. I don't have that. I'm actively like pushing this career that like, I got nothing to fall back on. And this is a hobby for you. You're like, well, yeah, but my YouTube channel, I'm so behind the times. <laughs> nah. And that, that was another just kind of weird experimentation thing that, you know, those videos are done in Ableton and, uh, I don't have any, you know, standard video editing stuff, but the time stretch stuff works in there and it keeps the video clip as long as it's in track number one. See, I've never used, I forget that the video, you can even do that kind of stuff with Ableton. I should look into that. Mm -hmm. Find all sorts of cool things. Crazy. All right. Well, thanks for coming over on the show. It's good to see you again and hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for having me on. No problem.